Go ahead and grab your seed. You can take your Bible and open up to Genesis chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible, we got ushers up at the front here. They're going to walk towards the back, and we would love to get a Bible into your hand. So you can just feel free to slip your hand up in the air. We'll make sure a Bible gets across to you. And if you don't own a Bible, then just take this home with you today. It's our gift to you. We uh, would love nothing more than to give you a copy of God's Word. We believe that in it we see God Himself as He reveals Himself to us. And it's amazing how God reveals Himself to us in every part of, of His Word. And I think sometimes we, uh, we underestimate the power of God's Word, and we, we don't realize how significant certain portions are. And it's fitting that I'm saying all this today because we're going to be looking at a genealogy. It's exciting, right? It's why you came. You're like, I bet you pastor's preaching from a genealogy today. I better show up. But I was reminded, even as, as we were witnessing these baptisms today, which were just so powerful and so precious, I was, I was reminded, I don't know if you caught this, the significance and importance of family. How much family plays a part in shaping somebody's life and shaping their trajectory and even leading them towards faith. And this can work both ways. I had a conversation this past week with somebody who, who shared with me that they had bumped into an old high school buddy of theirs and they, they had found out that this friend of theirs had just gotten out of prison. And they, they shared with me that they remembered in high school, early high school, going over to this friend's house, and this friend's house was a mess. Their family life was an absolute disaster. And this friend of his would often pull out, for example, illegal firearms from his dad's stash and just brag and boast, and there would be drugs and alcohol and all kinds of crazy things that they were kind of living in, and, and it was clear that this was a family affair. In fact, uh, both mom and dad in this house ended up going to prison as well, being heavily involved in criminal activity, and this individual had a sister who actually went to prison for manslaughter. I mean, family can have a massive impact on your life. And that's what we see in this passage. But when you think of family, I want to encourage you to think more than just a bloodline. This isn't about an ethnic family lineage. This is more about a spiritual family lineage. In fact, Jesus makes this point, and he, he kind of leans back into the book of Genesis. In John chapter 8, he's speaking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. They were well-versed in the law, in the Word of God, and they thought they were something special. Jesus is having a conversation, a debate with them, and he actually looks at them in the eyes, and he tells them that they're actually slaves. They're enslaved, and they need to be set free, and that Jesus himself was there to set them free. And they're deeply offended by this. And then they, they, they're arguing with Jesus. We've, we've never been slaves of anybody, Jesus. Abraham is our father. They appeal to their family tree, their lineage. But they appeal on the basis of a bloodline. Jesus, he hears this, and what he says to them is a stunning reality. He leans again back into the book of Genesis, and he actually says to them, he says, actually, you want to know something? Your father's not Abraham. You are of your father, the devil. And what he points out to them should be significant for all of us, and we ought to pay attention to this. Your spiritual lineage matters far more than your physical lineage. 
And here in Genesis chapter 5, we get a spiritual lineage. It's physical, but it's more spiritual than anything because it links us all the way back to God Himself. And we need to remember that this, this genealogy that we see is actually intended to be read against the backdrop of the genealogy in chapter 4, where we see the line of Cain, the son of Adam and Eve. Cain, the murderer from the beginning, he kills his brother Abel. And what we see is that Cain's line is a line of which wickedness and evil flow and permeate the earth. And God says, ultimately, there's only two lines. There's only two family trees. There's a line that stems from Satan, from the devil. There's a line of wickedness and sin. And then there's a family line that stems all the way from God. It's a line of righteousness and faith and faithfulness. It's a line of truth in contrast to a line of error. Chapter 4 ends with a note of hope. We saw this a couple weeks ago, where though Abel is dead, God gives to Adam and Eve another son named Seth. And here's what it says in verse 25. It says, Eve says, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And then it goes on to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. There was a godly line being established. God's family is being birthed. And what we see here is a record of God's children. And the question we need to ask is this, what does it look like to be a part of God's family? What does it look like to be one of God's children? Or maybe I can frame it like this. What do God's children do? And we're going to see three things. The first is this, that God's children, they wrestle with the reality of death. That's the first thing they do. They wrestle with the reality of death. Look at chapter 5. Let's just look at the first few verses. It said this. This is the the book of the generations of Adam. This marks a new section in the book of Genesis. And it's speaking directly to the generations of Adam, the genealogy of Adam. When God created man, He created him in the likeness of God. Male and female, He created them, and He blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own image or likeness after his image and named him Seth. We just read about that in chapter 4. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Now, just pause there for a minute. I want you just to see that this does start a new section in the book of Genesis that's going to take us all the way through the flood narrative. And it's a genealogy that begins with Adam. The question is why, and the answer is because it's showing the continuation and preservation of the godly line of the promised seed or offspring going all the way back to Genesis 3.15. God said this war was going to take place between the serpent, the seeds of the serpent, and the seed of the woman. There's going to be this cosmic battle. And what's fascinating here in these first few verses, we see Moses, who's the author of Genesis, leaning back into the the first chapter of Genesis. Did you catch that? All the way back to Genesis 1, 27 and 28. He almost quotes it verbatim. He goes back to the creation mandate. 
God created them in his likeness, male and female, and then he blessed them and he told them to be fruitful and multiply, right? He's, he's calling us back into the first chapter. Why? Why? Because he wants us to see something so important here. Though sin has entered the world and though death is now a reality, God's plan is still in action and will be accomplished through his people. God has not failed. God is not caught by surprise. God has always planned to bring about the reversal of the curse, and He's planned to do it through a people, a family, His children. Each child born partakes of the likeness of his father, but even more, each partakes of the image and likeness of God. Here's the connection. Did you catch that? So when he talks about Adam, he describes Adam as as God's son created in his image and likeness. And there's a sense, listen, in which all of humanity is created in the image and likeness of God, every human being. But there's a sense in which God's children are actually more in the image and likeness of God because they're able to image God to the world to a greater degree. They understand who God is. They understand the plan of God. They understand the purpose of their lives, and they're living for God in His glory, and part of living that out in this world is imaging Him to the world around us. So, Adam is made in the image and likeness of God, but then Seth, the same language is applied to him. And the implication is simply this, that just like the father, so too will the son be. God's family line will still image him to the world. His blessing would still be upon them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth this genealogy is, is actually fascinating. We're going to get into it in a minute. It's going to start in verse, or going to continue in verse 6. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. And we're going to read through this in just a second, but here's what I want you to see. We're going to see 10 generations represented in this genealogy. And that's an important literary feature that Moses is using. He's going to move us from Adam to Noah, which indicates, by the way, that this is likely a selective genealogy, which potentially has gaps in it between some of the ancestors. In fact, the word father that we're going to come across can actually mean grandfather. So, so we don't really know um, if every person is represented in the family line, but we know this, that the people represented here are real people. They lived. They existed. And it leaves room, listen, for a substantial increase in population. So, so in other words, the world is flourishing at this point. God is being faithful to His promise to allow them to be fruitful and multiply it. And, and by the way, this, this 10, number 10 in genealogy, it's only going to happen two other times in the whole Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 11, we're going to read a 10-person, 10 10-generation 10 genealogy uh, that moves us from Shem all the way to Abraham, okay? So we got Adam to Noah, then we're going to go from Shem to Abraham, and then at the very end of the book of Ruth in chapter 4, we're going to go from Perez to David. Do you notice something significant about all those individuals at the end of the genealogies? God makes a covenant with each one of them. And that's significant because right out the bats, want to know what we're learning about God's family? God's family is established by covenant. God shows His steadfast love to a group of people. He makes a covenant, a binding contract with a group of people. He brings them into His family. It's like a marriage covenant. 
But even though God is going to continue to fulfill His promises through His people, we're going to see this so clearly. Death is now going to be the new reality. Just listen to this. There's a pattern being established in this genealogy. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after uh, he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years. And then notice these words right here, and he died. Verse 9, and Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived, I mean, we we, we go all the way through this. Here's what you're going to hear over and over and over, all the way up to verse 20, over and over, and he died, and he died, and he died. It's the punctuation point that Moses is making. And I want you to hear that language because, because listen, the, the original audience is hearing this language and all of a sudden they're being transported somewhere very specific. They're being transported back into the first couple of chapters of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2 where God had stood before Adam and Eve and he had said to them, listen, all of this is for you. It's all good. It's all amazing. You can, you can eat of any of the trees, but you can't eat from this particular one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the day that you eat of this tree, here's what the Hebrew says, dying you shall surely die. And then, and then their minds are going instantly to that, that the serpent, Satan, who slithers his way into the garden and he, he looks at Eve as she stands there holding the fruit and, and he says to her, you will not die. And you want to know what we learned right away? Listen, this is so important to see right from the beginning. God is a truth teller and Satan is a liar. God tells the truth, listen, about what will bring you blessing in your life and God tells the truth about what will bring death in your life, okay? God is the one who can be trusted in this. Don't trust Satan. (laughs) He wants to come to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to bring death upon every part of your life. God God is faithful. Here's the, the awesome kind of application for us. God is faithful to his word. He's faithful when he says, promises of truth for our good, and He's faithful when He gives us promises of truth for judgment. God can always be trusted. And death in this picture reminds us of the reality of sin. That's that's what's reverberating in their minds, that this death, and He died, and He died, and He died, it's here because of sin. And all of this death reminds us that there is a separation between us and God. Humanity is no longer living in the fullness of life in the presence of God. Something is is wrong with the world. It's broken. I I say this at every funeral that that I, I do. I I often will preach from John 11, and in John 11, you you know the story, don't you? John 11, just for those of you who may be unfamiliar or can't be like, ah, what what happened there? That's when, you know, Jesus' good friend Lazarus dies. And there we find the shortest verse in all the Bible, best one. You want to start with Bible memorization? Right here. Jesus wept, okay? Simple. We all got it. Now, now what's, what's crazy is that in that passage, think about this, Jesus delayed in coming to Lazarus while he was sick. He did it intentionally so that Lazarus would die, knowing that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, 
And yet here Jesus is weeping at the death of his friend. Have you ever thought about, like, why are you crying, Jesus? And the word that's used there for weep in the Greek, it, it, it's not just like a, a, like a sadness, like a sorrow. There, it actually is embedded with this idea of anger. It's, like, it's used for like horses that are like stomping their feet. There's like an anger to it, a restlessness to it, a frustration with it. And you see, here's the implication. You say, why is Jesus weeping? Here's why Jesus is weeping. Because when he thinks about death, he's reminded that this world is broken by sin. Remember, Jesus was there at creation. All things were created by Him and, and for Him and through Him. And Jesus holds all things together by the word of His power. Jesus participated in creating the world. And just imagine, like, like, a, like an artist painting on a beautiful canvas, the most beautiful painting of insurmountable value is created, it's painted, it's perfect. And then all of a sudden, when sin intrudes into the picture, it's like somebody took a giant bucket of red paint or Campbell's soup and splashed it all over this priceless… Some of you got that. <laughs> this priceless work of art. Jesus looks at people who are dying, and you know what's going through his, his mind? It's not supposed to be like this. Death is normal. It's, it's the reality for us, but it's not normal. And here, this line of Seth, this genealogy of Seth, they live under this double-edged sword of human experience. The long life here that we read about, I think is, is literal. I think they really live this long, and it's, it's, it's this, it's this, it gives this injection of hope in the midst of this new reality. There's hope. There is life, but the double-edged sword tells us that death comes for us all. Now, listen, I, I want to make some application here because this is so important. The, the reality of death can actually help you today. <laughs> And I don't think we, we pay a lot of attention to this. We spend most of our lives trying to avoid thinking about death, and the Bible actually calls us to think and consider death. And I'm very aware that some of you in this room have been looking death square in the face lately. We seem to be in a season where, where just a number of people have had to deal with the death of loved ones, or maybe you're facing health challenges, and, and you're just now considering the reality of your own death. I want to just give you three things here. The reality of death helps, helps you in three ways. First, it helps you count your days. It helps you ask this question, how much time do I actually have? And you know what the simple answer to that question is? We don't know. We, we don't know. And it's interesting, the psalmist in Psalm 90, I'll put it on the screen for you, listen to what he says. When he considers his life, he says this, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We are called, in other words, to live in light of our own uh, mortality, to recognize that we all have a, a limited amount of time on this earth. Every tombstone has two dates, and that's it the date you were born, and the date that you die. 
The day is coming, as one author says, when the earth will not know us. We will be gone. And I just want to encourage you to count your days. To just remember that you have a limited amount of days where finite mortal human beings here and now, and the amount of time on this earth, you just, you have no idea. Listen, you can go about, you know, the the problem in this life is we live for the moment. We we live thinking we have an an inexhaustible amount of time, and so you know what we do? You know, we do like that man in jail. We we build more barns, and we put more, you know, we think we're going to just fill it with more stuff, and we just go after the things of this world, and we forget the words, you fool, today your life is required of you. We have no idea if we're going to make it one more day, one more hour, or one more minute. However long you have, I promise you this, you will die unless Jesus returns, okay, which will be awesome. I just, I just want to maybe encourage you today. Stop living for the moment. One of the greatest hindrances to truly living is the failure to, failure to wrestle with the reality of dying. So many people aren't really living because they've never faced the reality of dying. Secondly, death helps you consider your eternity. It helps you ask this question, where will I go when that time ends? And I want to encourage, listen, you, you can't just wrestle with your mortality. You need to wrestle with your eternity. This earthly existence is a mortal existence. We will all die, but the truth of the matter is we will all live forever. Hebrews 9, 27 says this, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Every one of us is going to stand before the judgment seat. We're going to stand before the great judge of the universe, Jesus Christ. The last date on your tombstone signifies, listen, not just the end of this temporary earthly life, but the beginning of an eternal life. Those who only live in and for the here and now will end up regretting it for all eternity I wonder what will you say when you stand before Jesus, the judge of all humanity? I wonder if you think about your eternity right now. And again, this is, this is hard. Listen, the, the Bible tells us that, that there's only two options, okay? You're going to spend all of eternity in, in a paradise called heaven, a new heavens and a new earth, a real physical place where you, if you are in Christ, you will dwell in the presence of God and you will have joy everlasting. But if you don't go there, listen, the only other option, there's no in-between, there's no, there's not multiple different paths and multiple different destinations. The only other place you go is to a place of terror called hell, where the Bible says the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. It's a place you go to pay for your sins, and the problem is this, that you can never fully pay for your sins, and so it is an eternal place of torment and suffering. This is what the Bible teaches. This is orthodox Christianity. And some of us, listen, we go through this life, maybe you're here today, and, and you've heard about Christianity, and you're, just, you're so busy looking at your life here and now, and you've never thought about this, or, and you've never wanted to think about this, but can I just, can I, can, can I implore you, you can, listen, you don't know what's going to happen in this, you don't know how long you have to live, and I promise you this, when you stand before the judge, you will not have the opportunity to decide where you want to go. The decision is made in the here and now. 
This is why in the book of Hebrews it says today, if you hear his voice, today is the day of salvation. Don't delay. Don't wait. Don't prolong this. Come now and have certainty about your eternal destination, the place of joy and paradise. Go to the place where Jesus is. Lastly, death helps you craft your plan. It helps you ask this question, what will I do with the time I have? Whether it's short or long, how will I spend my life? You know, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 2 and 4, I'll put them up on the screen there, it says this, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. He's saying this, listen, the fool focuses on, you know, the house of mirth, the party, the here and now, what you can get out of this life, and they forget that there is a whole eternity that awaits. And they throw away their their eternity, eternal joy, for some fleeting temporary pleasures here and now. They throw it away for sin. They they throw it away in rebellion against God. They throw it away in unbelief. And, And in this limited time where they could turn from their sin and have eternal joy, they refuse. The most important part of your tombstone, you want to know what it is? It's not one of the dates. It's the dash in between. What are you going to do with the dash? And what you do with that dash can determine your eternity. What you do in that dash can live on for eternity. And I'm not talking about you earning your way into God's presence. I'm I'm talking about you looking to the one who can pay for your sin, like we, we witnessed in the waters of baptism, the one who could die in your place, the one who could give you life. This is the premise of of John Piper. Many of you know him. He's got a great book. It's called Don't Waste Your Life. You see, God's children don't just wrestle with the reality of death. When you think about crafting your plan, you're like, well, what does that look like? Well, well, that's, that's the second point. Here's what it is. Listen, God's children walk with the God of life. This is the best plan. It is the best use of your time and the only thing that will live on into eternity. And what's interesting here is when you get down, let's just pick up at verse 18. And remember, there's a pattern being established here. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years. And he, what? Help me out. Died. Now watch this. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, look at this, and he was not, for God took him. The pattern is interrupted. The reality of death is interrupted. Do you see what's happening here? And the placement of Enoch's name could not come in a more dramatic way. We had looked at the genealogy in chapter 4, the the wicked line of Cain. And do you remember when we got to the, the name Lamech? Lamech is the seventh generation removed from Cain. 
And seven in, in the Hebrew um, worldview is a very significant number. It, it, it kind of represents the idea of, of the culmination of something, the fullness of something. And so in the, in the genealogy of Cain, you get to Lamech, and he's, he's number seven, and, and he's the most wicked of them all. It's almost like the, the culmination of wickedness is here. I mean, he's, he's, he's just this picture of the epitome of sin and unrighteousness and rebellion against God. He's this prideful, arrogant, evil man. And here it's fascinating. Judah's going to point this out to us. Guess who the seventh in the line of Adam is? Dinah. And so he's being singled out here in a, in a kind of literary way to help us see the significance, the, the culmination, the importance the fullness of the life of the child of God. And he says here, what's so significant about Enoch? He walked with God. That's not to say the others before him did not walk with God, but he's being singled out here in a significant way. And he's being held as a a contrast to Lamech in chapter 4. These two individuals, these two lives are, are placed in this eternal antithesis. They are hell and heaven, exponential death and unbounded life. But the most important thing to see here is that there's something that's able to interrupt the pattern of death, the reality of death. And what is that? It is this, the opportunity to walk with God. Enoch walked with God. Notice it's mentioned twice. The word is mentioned. That's significant. Circle that word, walked. The phrase walked with God is only applied in the Old Testament to two individuals in this way, Enoch and Noah in chapter 6. This does not mean, by the way, that everyone who walks with God will avoid physical death, but it does mean that everyone who walks with God will experience the same kind of life that Enoch experienced, both in this life and in the next life. And the implication is that there is a spiritual life that extends beyond this life after death. It's telling us death does not get the final word. So what does it mean to walk with God? I want to show you that walking with God requires at least three things. First, it requires God enjoying fellowship. It reminds us that God is relational. And we need to distinguish this idea of walking with God from walking before God or walking after God. Those are terms that are used of other individuals in the Old Testament. But walking with God is more intimate than that. The minor prophets use this phrase to describe the, the intimate walk of a priest who entered the Holy of Holies to speak directly with God. It reaches back to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. It's used as a metaphor throughout Scripture to describe a personal relationship with God. A commentator, Alan Ross, he says that the expression became a common description of the life of fellowship with the Lord, as if to say that walking with the Lord is a step above mere living. You know what he's saying here is to walk with God is life. It is the purpose of life. It is the goal of life. It is the the joy of life. It is what provides ultimate satisfaction in life. 
does that describe your relationship with God? Are you, are you enjoying fellowship with God? Uh, my, my fear is that many of us, we have a relationship with God, but we settle for a mediocre, joyless kind of existence with God, where, where God's this distant father figure that we never really kind of have relationship with, no intimacy with. We only go to Him when we want stuff. We only go to Him when we, you know, our life begins to fall apart and we need something from Him. And, and I think we miss out on the whole purpose of what it means to actually have a relationship with God. How do, you, how do you enjoy fellowship with God? Let me just give you three quick ways. I think it requires time with Him. You, you can't cultivate a relationship with anybody without time, right? You have to be able to devote time. You have to be able to look at your calendar and block out time to spend with the Lord, to spend with Him. You know, you not only need time with Him, you need to be talking with Him. Relationships require communication. You can't have fellowship by simply staring at somebody. And God, I want you to hear this, God is a relational being, but He is a revealing being. He, he reveals Himself in word, in communication. We have the Word of God, right? Talking, prayer is talking to God. God's Word, reading God's Word is God talking to us. Do you see that? So the, our whole relationship with God is built upon these two twin kind of realities. Talking with God in prayer listening to God through His Word. You say, well, I, you know, I've, I've said this before, right? I want to hear God speak to me. Great, read His Word. But I really want Him to speak to me out loud. Fine, read the Bible out loud. <laughs> can, I, can I actually, like, can I, can I give you some encouragement to actually do that? There, there's something unique. Have you ever tried? There's something, reading the Bible quietly in your mind and meditating is fine, but there's something actually really fascinating that happens when you read the Bible out loud. I find this in my own life. It actually forces you, I think, in some ways to engage with it at a different level. And maybe I would just commend to you that, that practice. Give it a try and just see how that might work to grow your relationship with the Lord. I want to give you one more. It takes time with Him, talking with Him, and it requires treasuring Him. Jesus Jesus said, where your, your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And, and, and listen, if, if God is not your greatest treasure, your heart, your heart for God will never, will never be filled with joy for Him. And I want you to see here that in all of this, we are called to walk with God, the God of life. Notice this isn't a run with God. Which again, that's such an important word for our culture. We're so busy. We got so much going on. Our calendars are full. We run from one thing to another thing. We rush through our time in the Word. We tick the box. We, we maybe say a prayer on the drive into work. Maybe. And I just want to encourage you not to settle for fast food fellowship. I, I want to encourage you to start sitting down at an all-you-can-eat buffet. can't be too busy for God if you want to have a genuine, enjoyable relationship with God. But this kind of fellowship is only the result of this, secondly, God-pleasing faith. God-pleasing faith. And it's interesting, 
that the New Testament speaks about Enoch a couple of times. And, and we see this. You can't have fellowship with God without faith in God. And, and Enoch is actually referred twice to God in the New Testament. The first time is in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. And, and Hebrews 11, if you don't know anything about Hebrews, Hebrews 11 is what's called the, the hall of faith. It's the great cloud of witnesses. They're, they're people who exemplified incredible faith in God. And so they're being held up as people to look at and to look to and to resemble in our own lives. And, and here we, we learn what characterized Enoch's walk. We, we don't actually see much in Genesis about the walk of Enoch, but the author of Hebrews has divine insight into this. And look at what it says right there on the screen. It says, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Can you see there? There's two, two things there that tell us what, what God-pleasing faith looks like. First, God-pleasing faith literally believes that God is. He exists. He is real. He's not a figment of our imagination. He, he is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. He is the sovereign creator and king of the universe who holds all power and all authority and is worthy of all honor and all glory and all praise. That's who God is. In other words, faith believes God's word about God. God is real, God is relational, God is right, and God is reliable. Everything he says about himself is true. And Enoch, he believed with all of his heart what God's word said about God, and it's the same today. Listen, God is so pleased with those who wholeheartedly believe what his word says about him, what his word says about the saving work of his son, Jesus Christ. Second, notice this, that God-pleasing faith is seen in that he believed that God rewards those who seek him. You see, saving faith is seeking faith. Pleasing faith is pursuing faith. This kind of goes back to the first point. The idea is this, listen, when you are saved, when you have this kind of God-pleasing faith, here's the essence of this faith. I believe who God is, and I want more of Him, right? I see who He is. I mean, He, he has every, he, he is life. He is joy. He is power. He is strength. He is mercy. He is grace. He is everything I need. I believe it, and I seek it. Your face, Lord, do I seek, Psalm 27, 8 says. And I just want this word to stick in your mind, okay? When it comes to your God-pleasing faith, I want this word to stick in your mind more. More. I want more of God. I, I, I'm not going to settle. I, I, I can't settle for what I already I want. More. I want to know Him more. I want to love Him more. I want to I obey Him more. More, more, more of you, God. Nothing pleases God more than a life of faith that seeks to know God more. And I love what Paul says in Philippians 3. The apostle, the great apostle Paul, 
in verse 8 through 10, he says this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Listen to these words. This is the heartbeat of the apostle Paul. He's 15 years into his ministry. That I may know him power of his resurrection. That's life. He wants to know more of the life of God that's found in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Listen, do not be content with where you are. Seek him more. What does that produce? Well, it produces finally here more God-fearing faithfulness. This is what walking with God requires. God-fearing faithfulness to the Lord. You see, saving faith is seeking faith, but it is also sanctifying faith. And it's interesting, you can't escape the reality that God-pleasing faith produces God-enjoying fellowship, which always results in God-fearing faithfulness. The more you, listen, the more you believe in, the, in God, the more you draw near to God, the more you want to be like God. By the way, we can reverse engineer this in our lives to help us diagnose maybe our sin and our apathy. So let me just say it like this. Maybe you're struggling with apathy or or you're not near to the Lord. You're backsliding in your faith. Well, no faithfulness is the result of no fellowship, which is the result of no faith. By the way, this is why the, the hall of Fame, the hall of faith, excuse me, in Hebrews 11, links behavior with belief by faith, by faith, by faith. And then it starts listing what they did. Look at how they followed the Lord. Look at how they obeyed. Look at what they gave up. Look at what they were willing to suffer. How did they do all this? How are they so faithful to the Lord? By faith. They believed God was worth it. They believed God would reward it. They believed in the end that there was nothing more valuable than faithful obedience to the Lord their God. Walking with God suggests deep intimacy, but also deep obedience. Obedience is manifested in holding fast to the Word of God despite the increasing wickedness and hostility of the world. It's manifested in proclaiming to the world, to the dark and dying world, no matter the cost, proclaiming Christ, proclaiming the hope that can be found in God. Look at what Jude says in verses 14 and 15. He says, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. I think he cares deeply about ungodliness, which, which means he cares deeply about what? Godliness. I mean, 
Enoch is this, this he's this God-fearing, faithful man. So, so you have, listen, while the world is just falling apart at the seams during the time of Enoch, wickedness and evil are flourishing to the point where God is going to judge the entire world with a flood. You want to know what Enoch's doing? He's not, he's not hunkered down in his basement, scared, cowering in fear. He's out there proclaiming, listen, God is going to judge you for your sins. Ungodliness is going to bring the wrath of God. He, he's, he's proclaiming a message of repentance. That's what he's doing. Judgment is coming. It's like Jonah in Nineveh. Repent. God can save you. Turn from your sin. Live godly lives. He knows the reality of death. He knows his days are numbered and so are everybody else's. He knows eternity is coming and he knows that what you do in this life matters. Enoch's walk with God consumed all of his life. It was rooted in the strongest faith, the deepest fellowship, and courageous faithfulness. He walked with the God of life, and guess what? He never died. <laughs> like, what did this look like? I don't know. God just took him up. Beam me up, Scotty. I don't know. It's kind of like Elijah, right? Like it's an allusion to, like Elijah kind of points back to, to Enoch, carried up in, the, in a whirlwind on a chariot of fire. I don't know, but, but all of a sudden he was, and then he was not. All of a sudden he was here, and then he was with God. Don't miss this, okay? Don't miss this. This is what the Word of God is saying. Those who walk with God now will walk with God for eternity. Death does not get the final say for those who walk with God. Our God is the God who overcomes death and the grave. Oh, how this ought to stir up our faith, church. How this ought to stir our fellowship with God. And how this ought to stir our faithfulness to Him. God's children walk with the, life, with the God of life. And finally and quickly, I'm just, one more point and then we're done. Wait with the hope of relief. This is what God's children do. They wait with the hope of relief. Look what it says next. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech, a different Lamech, Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son. And here, let's catch this. This is significant. This is the second interruption. And called his name Noah. Why? saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief. Some of you may have a note there on that, that word relief. If you drop down to your footnote, it tells you this. Why did he name him Noah? Because Noah sounds like the Hebrew word for rest or relief. Relief from what? From our work and from the painful toil of our hands. What's he doing? He's, he's drawing us back to the curse from sin. You know what this tells us? It's hundreds of years Hundreds of years after Adam and Eve had fallen, God's children were still waiting, still believing, still hoping, still trusting, still looking, still longing, still aching. And here, 
Here he has a son, and he believes that maybe this is the one who's going to bring relief from the curse of sin. Here's the one we've been waiting for who's going to take the the world that's been flipped upside down, and he's going to flip it right side up again. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The Lamech of chapter 4 celebrates the evil brought about by the curse through the song of the sword. And the Lamech here of chapter 5 anticipates the relief from the curse brought about through a human savior. Noah, that name, signifying the idea of rest or relief. You see, what we see here is that God's children have not forgotten God's promise. They see the world getting worse. We can relate to this, can't we? They see wickedness running rampant. They see massive problems both inside and outside. Evil is escalating. We feel like they did the pain of the curse. Life is hard. Sin is hard. Yet they wait with the hope of relief. I was talking yesterday with Rob Onley. Some of you know the Onleys and maybe you know that his father was in the news, David Onley, passed away not long ago. And it, it happened very suddenly. He was, Rob was telling me the story. He was, Dad just wasn't feeling well one day, and, and they went into the hospital, and they, they just thought it was something minor. And, and within a matter of days, they're, they're saying, this, this is it. And, and during the process... As, as his dad was going downhill rapidly, they, they told the family that they could incubate him and essentially they could keep him alive, but it was going to be on machines. And they said there was a risk that um, incubation, just, just the process of trying to do this, there's a 90% chance that that'll kill him itself. And, uh, and Rob told me how they, they went to his dad who was still coherent and was talking to him. And they said, Dad, like, this is the situation. This is what they could do. It could kill you. What do you want to do? Do you want us to go forward? Do you want to be incubated? And his dad said to them, no, I want to rest. He had found relief in his Savior, Jesus, and he knew that ultimate relief awaited. And Rob said, and his, you know, his family surrounding the bedside, singing hymns and as his dad was dying, he said, he said something, something really fascinating happened. He said his dad, with his dying breath, he, it sounded like he, he, he had his eyes wide open, and he said, wow. And he turned and looked at his wife, looked back up, and was gone. As if, as if he looked right into heaven and was saying, you, you, you can't believe what I'm looking at. And I can't wait to see you there. This is why even in the face of death, we do not grieve. God's children, we do not grieve as those without hope. And Rob said that the the staff in the hospital, just they noted how joyfully the family seemed in the face of his father's imminent death. And they said this to him, this is so unusual. And it opened the door for Rob to, to share the gospel. 
And many of you have similar testimonies. I've heard them very recently of singing songs of praise and, and, and unbelievers just not knowing what to do with it, but, but seeing the hope that you have, the realization that this life, it's not all there is. There's something more. There's something better awaiting us. Seeing you sing hymns of praise around the, the bedside of a loved one who's dying, being reminded, listen, that death is not the end. It is just the doorway to everlasting life. You see, we point others through our testimonies of, like this to our hope in Jesus as Noah is pointing us to the hope of Jesus. Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is the one who has come to provide relief. God came from heaven, and He walked on this earth. He walked to the cross where He hung, and He died in your place. But better than that, He walked out of the tomb. He didn't just interrupt death. He overcame death. He conquered death. He is victorious over death. He put death to death. Jesus says in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks the most important question in all the world, the question that determines whether or not you are one of God's children. Do you believe this? Are you part of God's family? Are you one of God's children? If not, you can be today. Wrestle with the reality of death, walk with the God of life, and wait in the hope of relief. One day that relief is coming, we will know the fullness of His rest, and we together as God's family will join our voice and rejoice for all eternity. Let's stand to our feet and let's sing praises to our God one more time. <laughs>